From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Brian Mullady is in the house, ready to answer your questions. Get in line. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, We'd still love to hear your question today. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson, handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Thursday live from Anderson, South Carolina, Father Brian Milady, How are you? Hello. How are you? Did you have grits for breakfast? No. Oh, and you call yourself a Southerner. Well, actually, you I'm don't. not a Southerner, right? I cook my own breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> so, wonderful day today, the uh, Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross. And you want to talk a little bit about the triumph of the cross today? Yes. Uh, this is a beautiful feast. And it's a feast that is connected to the finding of the true cross by St. Helena. But the deeper theological significance is, of course, that the cross is our salvation. In the first reading for Mass today, we had the famous incident of the Israelites complaining in the desert. Uh, Of course, as we know, people never complain about their food. And they complain about the fact that they don't have a lot of things. And so in punishment for the things that God has given them, he sends this kind of plague among them. They're bit by these serpents. But then the people cry out that God has mercy on them. And so this is, by the way, one of the examples of the Old Testament where the Jews are commanded to make an image. So they make an image of the serpent. They put it on a pole and they hold it up. And everyone who looks at the serpent, which symbolizes their disease, is healed. Now, in a similar way, Christ talks about being lifted up from the earth and drawing all people to himself, which is, as Moses did, which is, of course, uh, a fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament and especially a fulfillment of our own disease. Because when we look on the cross, 
we see what the results of the original sin are, what our egotism does to one another. And though, of course, Christ takes us upon himself to redeem us, it's still, of course, not pleasant. And if you've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, with Mel Gibson producing, you will see even the scourging scene is repulsive because Christ is wounded and dejected and experiences of the cross on every level of his being. So he not only has his flesh pierced, and our doctrine teaches us that since Christ's body was perfectly formed by the Holy Spirit, he would have been more susceptible to pain than we are because bodies experience pain when they're wounded. And then, of course, he's wounded in all four sections or five sections of the famous five wounds. So he has the crown of thorns on his head, and then he has the two nail prints in his hands and the nail in his feet. And then he's pierced eventually, even after he's dead, with the centurion's spear, the lance in the side, that goes into his heart and brings forth blood and water. He also experiences being judged unjustly, condemned unjustly by human judges. He also experiences the um, derision of the crowd and by implication all the Jews are streaming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover from around the Mediterranean world, and they deride him. And then, of course, the ultimate uh, suffering for him is to see the tears of his mother as she looks at him dying on the cross. So in all these things, both psychological and physical, Jesus experiences our pain that results from our sins. He does not do this, however, in faith. He doesn't experience existential darkness and blackness. People today suggest that Jesus had no idea what was happening to him. He knew God would make some sort of nice thing happen, but he suffered in darkness, even in his intelligence. Well, that isn't true. That is in our doctrine. In our doctrine, Jesus has the vision of God even on the cross. Now, of course, he doesn't allow that to arrive in his body so that he might suffer the passion. And Thomas Aquinas was of the opinion that both in the agony in the garden, remember, because Jesus suffered every single human sin uh, individually that would ever be committed in the history of the human race and offered his life as a victim for that, but also as a priest offers, that he wouldn't have been able to suffer this as man had he not known about the resurrection of the dead, which was something he predicted all throughout his life. But modern scripture scholars have a tendency to say those are the authentic words of Jesus they're an interpolation of the community. Well, they're not um, presented that way in the scripture. In the scripture, when Christ is lifted up from the earth on the cross, 
He draws the whole human race wounded by sin to himself so that as the priest and the victim, when he offers himself, he might redeem them by giving us back grace and healing us from the original sin as our redeemer. Scott Hahn in his book, The Fourth Pup, has a masterful analysis of this in relation to the Passover meal, because the Eucharist is not just the Passover meal. Uh, remember, the fourth cup wasn't drunk in the upper room. And it was only when Christ tasted again, which was on the cross when they held the sponge up for him, and also when he said, it is finished, it is consummated, that what was begun in the Passover meal is completed in his sacrifice on the cross. So the cross is central to our religion. There are people today who would like to present Christianity as a religion of Christ without a cross and say he might be a nice redeem, uh, you know, moral teacher or middle-class moral uh, savior who never teaches us to suffer but just wants us to be happy all the time and they forget that the cross is a, a central part of our religion um on the cross we with him worship god in this ultimate sacrifice so that the sacrifices of the temple are finished remember the veil is torn now for the holy of holies and now they all come together in Christ's own sacrifice as priest and victim on the cross. We are invited to be present to this act in the Mass. The Mass is an unbloody experience of being present at the cross. One bloody sacrifice occurred 2,000 years ago and isn't repeated over and over again. But it, that one sacrifice is made present when Christ from heaven with the wounds is made present, the glorious wounds now, the sign of his triumph over sin, is made present to us at every mass, in every place, in every time. So we must appreciate how central the cross is with the old hymn of Crux Ave Spes Unica. Across our one reliance. Hey. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these phone lines at 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, with news from EWTN's Vatican Bureau, you can watch all the important events from Rome, even if you don't have TV access. Using the latest technology, we've made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See, all delivered directly to your home via live streams. Watch live on EWTN's YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
Wide open phone lines for you on this Thursday at 833-288-EWTN with your questions. For Dominican Father Brian Mullady, the number again is 833-288-3986. You know, this this really kind of uh, piggybacks off of uh, your discussion of, of the cross at the beginning of the program. As Grant, who is not Catholic, writes in and wants to know how Catholics understand salvation. Catholics understand salvation as the giving of sanctifying grace to us beyond our merit. We don't merit it. It's something that's conferred on us by a choice by God, but we still have to live it all throughout our lives. So we wouldn't exactly say once saved, always saved, because you can always fall away from this through sin. So in addition to the grace, the initial grace of God, we also have to cooperate in that grace through our freedom and choices. And if we don't, we commit mortal sins. And if we die in such a state, we go to hell, uh, not to heaven. But uh, we look on the uh, salvation we have received as truly God's inner nature in which we, while we have sanctifying grace, are transformed to be like him. So we don't look on it as just overlooking our sins. We look on it as a real growth in the life of the Trinity in us, much as is a natural growth of the life we have in our parents. So just as we have infancy, teenagerhood, and adulthood, by natural life, so we have spiritual infancy in which we seek to detach ourselves from the evil actions and intentions that we have. Then we have spiritual teenagerhood where God takes over the process and begins to elevate our understanding to be like his, which is often like a darkness because we don't understand God, especially in the initial phases of this. And then finally we have spiritual maturity where a person experiences a kind of spousal communion of hearts while on earth with the Holy Trinity, which will be prolonged by vision in heaven. However, as long as we're on earth, a free choice, we can still fall away. Adam and Eve had a kind of infused contemplation, but they still sinned. But we do not look on man as totally depraved, God just overlooking our sins, once saved, always saved. Uh, when we accept Jesus as our personal Savior, he gives us the grace to go to heaven. But we have to cooperate in this, even though our cooperation may be infinitesimally compared to his action. He still continues to act in us. So in meritorious actions, it takes two to act. The Holy Spirit acts, and we also do our part, which again, may be very small, but it's still ours. And that's the reason why in my house, there are many mansions. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. We head to St. Louis, Missouri. John is a first-time caller listening on Covenant Radio. John, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, I just recently lost my daughter. Um, she was called back to to God um, early. I have five children, and she's the oldest. Anyway, um, everybody kept saying, "Oh well, she's um, probably in heaven already," and you know this, that, and that. You know, and I, I always wondered how does that work? To if we want to just make purgatory sort of a brief stop on our way to heaven. What do we do in terms of uh, indulgences or preparation in this life to make sure that our stay at purgatory is um, shortened? Well, remember, you can have your purgatory on earth. If you have a disease or you suffer injustice from someone and you offer that for your own punishment for sin, that can resolve it while you're here. A part of this is also prayers of others for you, and we'll pray for your daughter, too. And the indulgence is an application of this, where you do some good work for the church. And uh, so the church determines if you do this, that you will either partially or fully have the temporal punishment, not the eternal punishment you're already worthy of heaven, resolve. If you're in hell, you can't change that. But if you're in purgatory, the resolution may be quick or it may be prolonged. Uh, and plenary indulgence means that all the temporal punishment due to sin is resolved and you can go to heaven immediately. We're having a plenary indulgence offered this year by the church for devotion to Thomas Aquinas. So if you pray to St. Thomas, or you go to lectures for St. Thomas, or you attend Mass for St. Thomas, you cooperate in your salvation. And in that cooperation, whatever temporal punishment you may be worthy of is resolved. The problem of purgatory is that on earth, we can do active works to help to restore ourselves but once we die, we don't have a body. And so all the purgation and purgatory is passive. That's why they depend on us and our prayers and our intercession and our action to help them along. We can help to resolve that. So uh, that's the answer. God bless you, John, and you've done a great thing by calling the program because now a lot of folks will be praying for you, your daughter, and your entire family. God bless you. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Um, Ann Father is driving through California, your home state, and she wants to know what is the Catholic Church's teaching on pre-existent souls. I know a lot of folks in the Church of Latter-day Saints who believe in pre-existing souls. We don't. <laughs> Period. Because uh, in order for a soul 
to be created by God, there has to be an underlying body to receive it. And the parents supply the material body, but then God creates the soul. And the soul does not pre-exist its creation in the mother's womb, in the womb of the parent. Of course, once it's created, it's immortal, and then it never dies. But there, we don't believe in pre-existing souls. Uh, Dan would like to know if married couples are obliged to abstain while the wife is taking contraception. Well, you're not supposed to take contraception. <laughs> yeah, I was good. I, I thought when I read the question, he's got he's got gotten a step ahead of himself here. <laughs> yes, uh, um, they're obliged to not take contraception. Period. Um, if they're practicing natural family planning now, then she needs to abstain when she knows she's fertile, if she wants to practice it, as the church recommends it, because God himself uh, has created infertile periods in a woman's makeup. And so if we, by our wills, make use of that, is we want to limit our families, uh, you shouldn't reject children altogether, but if you, you feel you have too many children, or your financial or even psychological ability to care for them, then you can practice natural planning, which is recourse to the infertility present in the woman's cycle. But she has to determine that. You have to be aware of that. And then you have to choose each together to not have sex during the time when she might be able to conceive. You know, and and in in modern day parlances, the uh, the OBGYN community has has largely, for for many conditions, uh, will prescribe the birth control pill uh, as as a remedy for for these situations. But an increasing number of well intentioned uh, Catholic and otherwise um, practitioners are taking advantage of NAPRO technology and things like this, uh, where there are natural ways that the body can uh, resolve these situations. And it might be a good idea if that's the situation they find themselves in, that they find, uh, you know, someone who is, is practicing this way, huh? I guess I know nothing about it. <laughs> well, there you have it. So... Yes. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Give us a call. We'll get you up on the board for Father Brian Milady. Erica wants to know what are the benefits of having an unmarried priesthood? Oh, well, <laughs> the benefits are that we, first of all, imitate Christ perfectly, who himself was not married. And secondly, that we are totally and completely available for the apostolate. You know, Protestant ministers themselves today have encouraged us not to allow a married clergy because the family problems in families of Protestant clergy are very difficult today. 
Also, the primary reason was that at least for the time in which a person celebrates mass, they have to react in Christ's person. And therefore, they have to, again, imitate him. Now, in the early church, the history of this is rather difficult because there's been a spurious history given. But and we will, not and we we'll pick that up in just one second, but we also want to hear from you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mulady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please pray for our good friends at Siouxland Catholic Radio in Sioux City, Iowa. They're sponsoring a fundraising dinner this Monday evening, and the keynote speaker is none other than our own Dr. David Anders. So if you're listening in Sioux City, Iowa, Storm Lake, Nebraska, or anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic Radio Station. That is Storm Lake, Iowa, by the way, for those of you writing copy here at EWTN. little geography lesson for you. Um, anyway, we are talking, uh, we had an, e- an email from Erica about the married priesthood, and you were going to give a little history lesson on that, Father. Oh, yeah. Well, the traditional way the history is presented is that priests were celibate and married in the time of Christ. But in the ninth century, uh, because of inheritance laws and uh, lascivious clergy and all that stuff, the Latin church decided to prohibit marrying clergy. Whereas the Eastern church maintained the practice. Now that's not true. It is true that from the time of Christ, priests could be married or celibate, but there was they couldn't celebrate the Eucharist after they were married, but they could beforehand. In the Council of Trullo, which took place about 618, it was a local council in the Eastern Church. People just decided they would allow priests to consummate their marriage to have sex with their wives. But the um, prohibition was given that in the day in which they had sex with their wives, the next day they couldn't celebrate the Eucharist. The Latin church, realizing there were all these problems, just made it rather than have the wives have to give a promise of celibacy too and all that, they just made it a rule. No priest would ever be married. This does correspond very much to the ideas of Christ, again, about giving yourself in total consecration. Um, now, I know we have some married priests in the Latin church that come mainly from the Eastern churches. But again, they had this prohibition against celebrating Mass. And the difficulty was that normal things in the Latin church and things that really should be normal church-wide were not practiced in the Eastern church. 
So the first thing to go was the Eucharist. The second thing was that because they saw the bishop as having the fullness of the priesthood, they insisted on bishops being celibate, which meant only monks basically could become bishops. Now, as you know, in the Latin church, there are religious who are bishops, but that's by way of great exception. And usually because of all some problems in the local clergy or uh, that sort of thing, we don't tend to seek the episcopacy. Although one of the members of my province was just made a bishop and he had been the pastor of our church in Anchorage. And so they made a bishop of Fairbanks because there's so few clergy up there. Now, I would say he doesn't isn't worthy to be that, but normally we don't do that. Still time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Another first-time caller, Rob, in Chicago, Illinois, listening on WSFI. Rob, you are on with Father Brian Malady. Uh, yeah, good afternoon, Father. Uh, quick question for you. Uh, regarding praying for souls in purgatory, uh, does the Church hold an official position, or is there a tradition whereby an individual is to pray for that soul in purgatory, like a time frame, uh, then that once completed, that the person that's praying for that soul in purgatory can be confident that the soul has gone on to the greater glory? Well, we don't really know. Uh, we're told that, yes, it's a matter of our faith. But that's up to God, really. But he's the one that asked us. You know, in Maccabees, one of the, it's one of the texts that's the source for this, where Judas had a battle with the pagans, and a number of the Israelites were killed, but they found pagan amulets under their clothing. So Judas... Maccabeus had a sacrifice made for these people after they died. And then there's the statement made it's a holy and wholesome thing to pray for the dead. So the confidence is that if, especially plenary indulgence, that if you uh, pray for this for a person who's deceased, that yes, they will go directly to heaven. Thanks, Rob. We appreciate that call today. 833-288-EWTN. Terry is up next in the great state of Oklahoma, listening or watching us rather on YouTube today. Terry, you're on with Father Brian Malady. Thank you, Father. I had a quick question about um, the anointing of the sick, and I was wondering, can a priest perform that sacrament on a non-Catholic? And if they have a valid baptism, he could. But if they don't have a valid baptism, he can't. Because you can't receive any of the other sacraments without having received baptism. A priest could go to the hospital and bless someone who's dying or bless someone who's ill and pray for their healing. But he can't give the sacrament to the sick. And the reason is because uh, it involves the forgiveness of sins. It's also the reason why no one but a priest, not even a deacon, can confer the suffering of the sick. So, uh, because it involves the forgiveness of sins, 
you have to be baptized. Yes. Does that help, Terry? You know, Oops, I'm sorry, Father. I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, we do recognize baptism in some of the Protestant denominations as valid, but it wouldn't just be anybody. And the person would have to know the circumstances. Does that help, Terry? Yes, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for the phone call. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Give us a call at 833-288-3986. Is embryo research ethical, Stephanie wants to know? Embryo research. Well, uh, it depends on how you obtain the embryo, I think. If you do it, you know, in an immoral way, then no, it's not. And also, we don't, you know, we do occasionally uh, have embryos that are obtained in moral ways where we do research for diseases and things. But uh, you you can't... uh, do it on an embryo which is obtained by, for example, in vitro fertilization. It's one of the problems we have with in vitro fertilization because, as you know, they don't just fertilize one egg, they do a number, and then they're left with things that are left over. So they are frozen, cryogenesis. The trouble is that uh, what do we do with them now? Some people think they should be adopted but that creates a whole problem with the idea that child should be the fruit of, 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 of the, their own mother and father. And once you start crossing over embryos and implanting embryos and people that didn't conceive them and all that, well, eventually family again is attacked. So uh, I believe there are some embryos that are morally and in that case they could do it but not otherwise 833-288-EWTN that's our toll free number 833-288-3986 back to St. Louis we go Tony is also listening on Covenant Radio today Tony you're on with Father Milady. hello um, I forget which gospel account it is of the uh when Jesus is in the garden praying, and the men come to arrest him, I think they say, are you Jesus? And he says, yes, and they get knocked off their feet. And I just wondered what was going on there. What is his power or the significance of that? Yes, Jesus is demonstrating his power as God. But they're still going to arrest him. Uh, and if they had faith, they would appreciate and know that, but they don't. So that Jesus demonstrates divine power and authority in that. But uh, he was arrested, as you know, nonetheless, and not a way to be tried, scourged, and crucified. God bless you, Tony. We appreciate the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288. 2883986 Um Linda would like to know why did Jesus tell Mary that it was not his time at the wedding at Cana Well the Lord told her that this public ministry hadn't begun yet 
And, uh, you know, he was not to show his divinity until his public ministry began. But to show Mary's intercessory power, he still did the deed to um, show his reverence for her and things like that. Also to bless marriage and for other reasons. But he wanted to say that uh, he had begun his evangelization yet, and so it wouldn't be fitting for him to demonstrate his divinity. Now, um, as you know, that thing pretty much took place in secret because they didn't really know where the whole... Jesus didn't do it publicly. You know, she... Barry says, do whatever he tells you. And uh, basically all he does is tell him draw, withdraw the wine or the thing and send it to the chief steward. But he makes no bones about the fact that he's not doing this publicly as a part of his public ministry. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We've got another first-time caller. Dan is in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Dan, you are on with Father Milady. Hello, Father. Um, so my question is regarding parents who have passed away and if, well, basically where their souls go or if it's known where their souls go if they have uh, divorced and remarried. Well, if they repented at the moment of their death or if they turned toward Christ, that's instantly accepted. Most people are obviously not going to have sex at their deathbed. And then the issue is remarriage is a sin, it's true. But the further sin that makes it constant is having sex with someone to whom you're not married. So if that doesn't occur, and if the person's truly repentant for whatever their sins may be, you know, our God is a good and merciful God. He automatically accepts that. So in other words, they wouldn't go to hell. Awesome. Thank you, Dan. That's a great question. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls and a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Um, the World Over Live is on tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern time on EWTN television and radio. Father Gerald Murray Talks about the status of the Vatican's investigation of Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas. Uh, Robert Unanue, the CEO of Goya Foods, discusses faith, family, and his Goya Cares Foundation to combat human trafficking. And former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on the program tonight talking about his new film, Route 60, The Biblical Highway. That's the World Over Live with Raymond Arroyo tonight at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Um, Brent wants to know, is the magisterium the law of the church or the Bible? The magisterium comprises, well, first of all, 
there are two sources of revelation, scripture and tradition. They're equal. Their servant and interpreter is the magisterium, which basically is comprised by the bishops as a whole. But the Pope, as the Bishop of Bishops, can represent the college also in determining what scripture and tradition teach us. And they're not to be isolated from each other because what's not answered in one is often answered in another. 833-288-EWTN. Jerry wants to know, is the penance given after absolution always sufficient in reparation for the sins confessed? Yes. The uh, priest should try to tailor the penance to fit the offense. Normally, most confessions today are about venial sins or commonly committed mortal sins. So you just have to give, um, you know, you normally give prayers. People who make penances that are too complicated, you know, often absolve the people from having to do them. I knew one priest who used to require teenagers to read a chapter in a book on scholasticism or something like that. I mean, that's not, not a fitting penance for confession because it's too hard to do and too hard to get and takes too long. But the normal penance that priests give, which are mostly prayers, or sometimes restitution, if it involves theft, those penances, uh, yes, are sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Tom in Des Moines, Iowa, listening on Iowa Catholic Radio. Tom, you're on with Father Milady. Thank you so much for taking my call. I listen to you guys a lot. And I have the impression, I think I've read this somewhere, uh, your call screener educated me a bit, but were the apostles ever explicitly told, do not go to Asia and the Far East to evangelize? Well, no, they weren't. Because Thomas, for example, supposedly wanted from India. In fact, there's a whole, you know, when the Europeans discovered India, they discovered a whole Christian church there in Goa that uh, had been in existence since the Apostle Thomas and actually has its own rite of the Mass that comes from basically the time of the Apostles. Oh, no, no, they, what were they told? Go into the whole world, which includes Asia Minor and the rest. And Paul certainly spent a lot of time in Asia Minor. And other apostles evangelized places like, well, Ephesus and um, uh, I forget the name of the town, oh, well, Antioch, of course. But then there was another place where, is in the legend of uh, the Acts of St. Jude, where the king received the image of St. Jude from St. Christ, from St. Jude. So obviously he made it there. So no, no, they were never told that. It was go and reach the whole world. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Uh, if you've got a question for Father Brian Mullady, 
you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line uh harlan writes in i've been led to believe that a natural marriage is more than just mutual permission to perform the quote-unquote marital act but involves the intention on both parties to form a union oriented toward the procreation of children a union formed for merely economic or legal reasons with no procreative intent would not be a true marriage. That said, one traditional view of Mary and Joseph's union was that she was entrusted to him for protection and provision in what was intended to be a sexless, childless union. This seems, un- in re- uh, this seems irreconcilable with our natural law understanding of marriage. Is it acceptable to think that the union of Mary and Joseph was a marriage um, in the legal sense, um, sufficient to pass on inheritances and things like that. Oh, more than that, they were married in the Lord. It's um, the, the question of the Josephine marriage is an important one. And it wasn't the traditional explanation. You didn't even find this in Thomas Aquinas, is that they didn't renounce sexuality but they chose not to participate in it because God had told them that Christ would be their only child. But they entered into this union with the understanding that should God ever change his demand to them, that they were willing, ready and willing to obey. So in other words, they didn't shut off totally the possibility of other children but they chose according to divine providence to determine whether this should be. And that's why it's a true and authentic religious marriage to not just natural marriage. Um, Nathaniel writes, excuse me, Brenda writes in, in light of the recently concluded SatanCon in Boston and the request from the Cardinal Archbishop not to join a protest, would it have been disobedient to have gone anyway? I, re- I regretted not going out of obedience, but just confused why the ones that did hold a prayer rally did not get the clerical support it needed. What is the difference between praying outside such an event and praying in front of a Planned Parenthood facility? Uh, well, I, I'm not familiar with the event you're talking about, but it's and I don't know why the bishop said that, I'm not him. But I have the idea that it might be just not to antagonize government and other people with a kind of negative display. And uh, and as regards your question, there really is no difference between the two. Although one is obviously a rare event, I hope the Satan is a rare event. Whereas abortion at the moment is not. So it's possible the bishop just wanted to avoid problems. But um, I, I really don't know. You'll have to ask him. We'll head quickly to Randy in the great state of Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Randy, you're on with uh, Father Brian Mullady. Church physician, having tattoos all over your body and having piercings. 
Yeah, a little bad phone connection there, but Randy wants to know the church's position on tattoos and piercings. Oh, that's something I really have difficulty with myself. Um, Because of all your tattoos? Well, no, because of all the Samoans (laughs) and companies that have tattoos. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, And Catholics. Yes, it's cultural. I would say if the thing is cultural and it symbolizes something of the culture, that um, we wouldn't consider it a manipulation of the body. But if all we're doing is doing this for artistic sake, so people think we're cool, that that would be considered manipulation of the body and and be forgiven, uh, forbidden. But, uh, you know, the cultural thing, um, I'm on Facebook with a lot of guys who are devout Catholics. We don't communicate because we don't speak the same language. But I find them fascinating from Indonesia and Bali especially. And, you know, they all have tattoos all over themselves. But this is a ritual connected to their culture. So I don't think we would consider it manipulation in the same way that we would, again, for someone who just went to the tattoo parlor to get a tattoo. And I don't, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know that the church has really made an official statement on this. Yeah, I did some research on this once when I knew a Samoan who asked me about it. And its problem morally would be that it is, of course, mutilating your body in some way. Now, today, I don't think there's much danger of death from it. But, you know, in former times, because of the way they did tattoos, you could easily get poisoned or infected by it. In that case, it would be forbidden. But today, the way they do it, it doesn't seem to be life-threatening on much of anybody. So if it corresponds to your culture, and it means something to your culture, then I don't think we'd have a problem. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. We're back at it again tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until we get together then, God bless.